Stay hungry, stay foolish. Every child has an inner spark, a combination of unique temperament and various experiences, and we want to fan that flame to help kids become happy, healthy, and internally driven to be the best them they can become. Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel. Children can often act out or shut down when faced with a setback or a tricky issue like homework, food, or screen time. Our guest calls this the no-brain response. But we can help children develop the ability to cope solve their own problems, and thrive by nurturing the yes brain. Drawing on her successful work with thousands of parents and children from all backgrounds, our guest provides the advice, tools, and activities to help parents and children of all ages. This is what the yes brain approach looks like in action. A five-year-old boy thinks about his first day at school and says, I'm nervous, but I'll give it a try. An eight-year-old girl says, I'd like to join the football team, even though none of my friends like football. A 14-year-old boy looks at the test he's earned a D for and says, that's not the mark I wanted, but it's not the end of the world. I'll ask the teacher, how can I improve? I would like to add to all this that the ES brain is what we need in business environments today, a mind open to possibility with the ability to control emotion and recognize when fear is a blocker. So please do listen to this show as a parent, a corporate innovator, a change maker, or out of pure curiosity. We welcome author of The Yes Brain Child. Help your child be more resilient, independent, and creative amidst many other best-selling titles and a new one on the way. Dr. Tina Payne-Bryson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is not just applicable to parenting. I'm so glad you said that because it really has to do with any relationship or really any environment or system we're in. It's really about how we manage our own emotional reactivity and how we help others deal with it as well. You tell us the RIAS brain is created by neural activity that involves the prefrontal cortex, and we can learn to increasingly access and pay attention to the functions of this part of the brain. Can we start by exploring this region of the brain and how we can develop it? What you just said there was really important, and that is that a yes brain and a no brain, they really are neurological states. So it's really a state that's happening in our brains and in our bodies, and then over time, which type of state we're in, a more of a yes brain or a no brain state, the, the more time we're in those states, it becomes not just a neurological state, but it becomes kind of our trait or who we become. So how we cultivate a yes brain or kind of be stuck in a no brain, that really does become our mindset and who we become. So the best part about what we're going to talk about about this prefrontal cortex is that it is changeable well into our adulthoods. So all of us, regardless of our age, have the power and possibility to cultivate more of a yes brain by building our middle prefrontal cortex. And so this middle prefrontal cortex, which is the frontmost part of our frontal lobe, and if you sort of imagine it's back behind your eyebrows and the orbits of your eyes, it's the very last part of the brain to develop. And that lasts well into the mid to late 20s. But what's great about it is because it's the last part of the brain to develop and it's sort of on the outer structures of the brain, it's also very plastic, and so we can continue to change it throughout the life. So what this part of the brain does is really kind of the seat of social and emotional intelligence, of um, academic or business success. 
and of mental health. So here are some features of that part of the brain. It lets us control our emotions or regulate our emotions. It lets us regulate our bodies. It um, gives us response flexibility. So this could be like um, a situation comes up and you're able to sort of think about the options, what are the consequences and rewards of each of those choices or paths, and and to really be flexible to shift gears among those different options. So that's a really important one. It allows us to tune into other people's minds through, you know, so it's empathy, but also providing attuned communication. It's where personal insight happens. Um, it's where we can tolerate uh, frustration or big emotions, which is part of self-regulation. But it's also the part of the brain that allows us to overcome fear. Um, and so we add in these things. And then on top of it, intuition and morality are part of that that center of the brain. So when the whole brain is working together, um, and Dan and I talk about this as integration, where the different parts of the brain are functionally linked together, this is what can lead to a yes brain. And this yes brain is an open, receptive uh, state of, of being that is able to do all those things I just listed. And when we're in a no brain, what happens is we actually move into a state of disintegration. And our middle prefrontal cortex sort of goes offline and we start operating more from our reptilian brain or our subcortical below the cortex structures. And we act without thinking. And what happens in this no brain state when we're not accessing this prefrontal cortex is we become rigid. We become chaotic emotionally. We are defensive. We're afraid, you know, we live in fear. Um, we can be aggressive and attacking. So it's really a place where we can get stuck where we're not our best selves and we can do and say things that are destructive to others and to ourselves. It's really not an optimal state. It's also a state, this no brain state that over time, if it's repeated and kind of prolonged can turn into mental health challenges like depression, anxiety, and even difficult relationships. And I thought about this no brain state from a corporate transformation or innovation perspective, because it's almost like the corporation or the organization is a body of people and those people are in that no brain state and in that state they go on the offense and they do what halts innovation and change all the time they push back on new knowledge and fight off input from others attacking and rejecting are the two ways you say that the no brain deals with the world i think this is really important yeah and that rigidity you know the so you know we think about rigidity and being stuck as a no brain state the basis of that is fear and a lack of creativity and what a yes brain leads to are states where we can be more creative and we can tolerate the discomfort of stepping outside of what we know so when you're talking about innovation um you know, it's it, a lot of times it's taking a leap, it's taking a risk and tolerating risk and tolerating some discomfort and tolerating criticism a lot of times. But if we're in this yes brain state, we can we can tolerate that without, you know, falling apart emotionally, but we can also see more clearly. We have a much bigger perspective, you know. So I think some of the times we when I think about a no brain, it's like a, a kid who is, you know, really anxious or fearful about something. And it's like they only see a tree. And I think about the yes brain as being like, I can see the forest, right? So yeah, I might have a tree over there that's kind of afraid, but I've got a whole forest here I can look at. So it's not about running away from fear or feelings or anything like that. It's really about having being in a state that can transcend that or tolerate that. 
And I'd love to, throughout the show, tic-tac between parenthood and corporate change and innovation and change in general. You stress this, and I think it's important for us to remember this, a seemingly omnipresent no-brain is typical and developmentally appropriate for children because we can expect too much from children too early. We can. And, and one of the ways we think about this from a neurobiological perspective is that middle prefrontal cortex is still really underdeveloped in childhood and adolescence. And so they won't consistently be in a yes brain state as much as an adult will be typically because they're more vulnerable to having those lower structures of the brain hijack that prefrontal cortex. Dan and I talk about this as sort of flipping your lid. We do this little hand model, you know, that kind of shows where the different parts of the brain are. And we talk about how when you, you know, when emotion runs really big or you get, you know, things are happening really intensely, you sort of flip your lid and lose access to what that prefrontal cortex does. But yeah, and I think what happens over time is as a child develops, their window of tolerance expands and their skills to deal with adversity and difficulty build and grow. So they move more and more into yes brain states. I think even our infants are in yes brain states. It's not that they will always be in no brain states. You know, when an infant is happy and content and they're looking around the room and they're open to learning in those moments, those are yes brain states. And when they're hungry or, um, or hot or, you know, not feeling well, they, they cry and that sort of becomes, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed with this doesn't feel good. That's more of a no brain state. And so when we see a child being curious or creative or um, handling themselves well, you know, when they're playing with a, with a friend or a sibling and they're sharing or they're being cooperative, those are yes brain states. And what's so important to us as employers or parents or whoever we're sort of leading, we can think about this as leadership, is that the experiences we provide don't just influence the minds or characters of others. The experiences we provide actually activate brain activity. And so the kinds of experiences we provide and where we orient someone's attention to repeatedly makes neurons fire and wire. So we are sculpting people's brains in the kinds of experiences we have. So we absolutely can have an influence on children, especially, in how we help cultivate that yes brain. We can help them have more yes brain states and build skills so that they can stay in that yes brain state so that it becomes more of a trait in who they become. You tell us to consider how many of a child's waking hours are actually spent in no brain work or no brain activities. And that becomes more important in this world in particular that we strive to offer them yes brain interactions whenever we possibly can, because we are the ones that will show them we're activating the mirror neurons. And Absolutely. Leading the way. So that brings up a big question. You know, it's funny when, when this book came out and Dan and I were speaking to parents, we made it really clear this book is not about telling your kids yes all the time. This is not a permissive parenting book. What's important about this is children learn best through what they see and what they do. So, you know, hands-on activities where they are moving their bodies and they're, they're trying things out. They have these sort of trial and error moments of learning. They learn best from trying things themselves and from what they observe. And, and how we parent, how we handle ourselves in the world, including how we're interacting in our relationship with our child, does it's not just modeling as you mentioned there's mirror neurons and there's all of these things that actually captivate their attention that make their brain fire as well so if we want our employees or our children or our spouses to be in yes brain states more 
then that means we need to be. And so Dan and I really talked a lot about this fun idea about how we can think about not just our children's yes brain or no brain, but think about am I being a yes brain parent right now or am I being a no brain parent right now, right? And so I can handle a discipline moment in a way that's a yes brain way or a no brain way. So, and it doesn't matter if I'm saying the word yes or no, I can say the word yes in a really no brain way. Like I can say, yes, fine, just go ahead and do it. You're driving me crazy, right? So that would not be yes brain parenting, even though I'm saying the word yes. It really has more to do with, are we staying in those moments, open, receptive, learning, creative, flexible, empathic, using our insight, regulating our own emotions? Are we doing those things? And as parents, we're going to mess up all the time. We're going to do no brain parenting. It's part of who we are as humans. The key is if, if we have those kinds of ruptures with our kids that we repair, that we say, gosh, I really got mad earlier and I, I don't like the way I handled that. I wish I had handled that earlier. And I'm sorry if that felt bad to you. Um, so I think, you know, there are ways we can make repairs. We don't have to be in yes brain states all the time. If we use our no brain mistake moments as learning opportunities and times to reconnect with our children or anyone else, those can uh, be really powerful and meaningful as well. I mentioned I read this book over my holiday, which was great because I was very much in parenting mode, but I was reading it through the lens of innovation. And I often think of your work and Dan's work, you're having a massive influence on the future because these children will become leaders of tomorrow and them with a yes brain will make innovation happen better, will make change better happen and hopefully a more universal approach to life. And it's so important to get that message out because this can be looked at the way to go, look, I can use this framework also to interact in the business ecosystem, but also I can nip the problem in the bud by applying it myself. Yeah. But just as we can facilitate new wiring, the opposite is also true. When we neglect certain parts of children's development, parts of the brain can be pruned and they can be underdeveloped and even wither and die. I think that's important to say as well. Yeah, it is. So just like the kinds of experiences our children have build their brain, the kinds of experiences they don't have build their brain as well, right? And change that brain. So it's really important when if we think about how much power we have in the idea that where attention goes, neurons fire and where they fire, they wire. So what we're giving attention to or how our children are spending their time really does influence what gets strengthened and built in the brain. And then what's not being used withers and dies away. And so, you know, I think about this a lot when we're talking about the heavy use of screens in our families, not just among children, but among parents too. And, you know, if our children are spending hours and hours on screens, it's not just what they're being exposed to. I mean, that might be, let's say it's even really enriched learning that they're doing those hours and hours on screen. What that means is everything we say yes to is a no to something else, right? So that means that they're not having, those hours aren't being spent doing something else like free unstructured play outside or like interacting with peers or, you know, something like that. And you could say the same for something that maybe people might not even feel so negatively about like screens, but even structured activities, you know, now parents we sign our children up for a lot of enrichment types of things. So um, what we know is that compared to 15 years ago, our children spend 10 hours less a week just having free unstructured play in their backyards and neighborhoods. And some of that's been re replaced by screens. Some of it's been replaced by 
a lot of additional academic intensity. And then some of it's been being replaced by things that we think of as good for kids, like um, athletics or music lessons or you know, I kind of make the joke that now parents are like, oh, mindfulness is good for my kid's brain. Now there's science to promote that. So I'm going to sign my kids up for all kinds of mindfulness classes. And then it's going to be competitive, like my kid's more mindful than yours or something. It's going to go in that direction. <laughs> um, but I think we just, what this means is that we need to be really thoughtful about, you know, we talk about these four pillars of the guest brain, balance, resilience, insight, and empathy. And a part of balance is not just emotional regulation, but it's also thinking about a balanced life. Are our children having hours and are we having hours um, and time dedicated to connecting with others? Or is most of what we're doing really isolating? And we know that our connections with others is one of the biggest parts of happiness and meaning in our lives. Um, you know, are our kids getting enough sleep? Most kids are pretty sleep deprived and that can actually lead to more no brain states. So we really have to be thoughtful because what we're not focusing on, what we're not spending time doing is also impacting the brain. Yeah. And I think it's important there. You mentioned free play because I see this as a mirror of organizations as well, where it's yeah. all billable time, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of pressure on people. And you call out, this is very important to understand free play is not the same as structured play in sports and in life. Yeah, it's not. It's not the same at all. I mean, I think there's value and benefit that comes from structured things. Like, I think sports are phenomenal. All three of my boys have played team sports, and I think they're wonderful. I think they teach kids so many good things, and I think they're really connecting for communities. You know, I've built a lot of relationships sitting in the stands at baseball games, and um, but it's not the same as this free unstructured play. And I think what's interesting is, you know, I have teachers that have been in the field for decades and everywhere I go, they're telling me I have more dysregulated kids in my classroom and I don't know what to do, do with this. And, and they, they, they basically are saying kids have changed. Kids are changing. And I say, um, you know, we can look at that. Uh, we can say that, you know, I think one of the ways I think about it is that if that's true, that more kids are more dis dysregulated, and I, I think it may be, is that we know that play, play with peers, play outside, um, this sort of not adult-directed but child-directed play, we know that that builds social and emotional intelligence, and it builds the capacity to tolerate negative emotions. Because... You're, you're, let's say you're playing with someone else and you want to do it this way, but the friend says, no, I want to do it this way. But you're having so much fun playing. It's so enjoyable that you're willing to sit in the discomfort of not getting your way and having to shift things in a direction you didn't like. So it really kind of gives kids, it helps them get, uh, flex that those emotional breaks and flex those emotional muscles repeatedly in an environment that's safe and really fun. And so it builds all of these amazing skills. The other thing that play does is it helps release stress. So kids can, if you watch children play, they, um, they often reenact the things during their day or things that have happened to them that they haven't, they don't quite have made sense of or something that's bothering them. And so they, they, they process there are things just like we as adults, like I might come home and tell my husband, I got so frustrated about this and I process it verbally. Kids process and play and it releases stress for them. So if you take away kids' stress reliever 
and you take away what builds their social and emotional skills and you throw a ton of stimulation at them through screens and you throw earlier academics at them and you sign them up for a million things and have them overscheduled and they're not sleeping enough, of course, we're going to have more and more dysregulated kids. You know, and kids, I always really believe that behavior is communication. And so if you have a kid that's falling apart a lot, that's difficult emotionally, that's rigid and inflexible and emotionally chaotic, your kid is communicating something isn't working for me. Either I don't have the skills to manage the demands of my life or the demands of my life are too big. Or sometimes it's a combo. I love that idea because that goes for bullying, bullying in the workplace, in the playground, that it's communication of some way that the person's trying to get across. And as an adult, obviously, they're just children with longer legs. Yeah. You share a case study here and you talk about a boy you worked with, which is Teddy. Yeah. And the importance of balance. And the first fundamental that emerges from the yes brain is this idea of balance. It'd be great to mention that to our audience. Dan and I start with balance on purpose because you can't be resilient, insightful, or empathetic, which are the, these four pillars of what really is a yes brain. It's sort of taking the way we sort of came up with those four pillars is to take those functions of the middle prefrontal cortex and sort of group them into these four pillars. And we can't get to resilience, insight, and empathy, or any of the other functions of that prefrontal cortex if we are not emotionally balanced, if we're not in a state of regulation. Um, and so when when families come to see me and they and they say, you know, look, my kid is, you know, having these big behaviors and they're sort of falling apart more easily and all of these things are happening, you know, I, before we get to any of the other things, we have to start and say, What's really going on here? Let's peel the layers back. And instead of just punishing this kid for his behavior, how about, which is to me like treating symptoms without looking at the cause. So we have to really peel back the layers and find out what's going on for this kid that's making him not be successful in weathering challenges during his day, right? He's telling us this is not working for me. So when we do that, we can start looking at, you know, how frequently is he in these no-brain states? You know, how long does he stay in these yes, no-brain states? You know, and, and to really see, make sure that's developmentally outside of what we would expect before we start doing intervention. Um, but what's really cool is that we can help kids become more balanced, more emotionally regulated. And for this kid, Teddy, and of course, we've changed names and some details, but um, the first thing we needed, I felt like I needed to do was teach him about his own brain. And, you know, Dan has this great word that um, he made up called mindsight. And mindsight is really seeing your own mind and the minds of others. It's sort of a combo of insight and empathy. And so what I've found in working even with really young kids, even four and five-year-olds, is that we can teach them about their brain. And we can say, you know, and I do the little hand model with them, and this part of your brain is where you have really big feelings, and that's the lower parts of the brain. And this part at the top of your brain, that's where you can, you know, make calm, kind choices and take pause before you do something. And when your feelings get really big, you can flip your lid. And so I, t I taught this guy really also about um, – really just how his brain worked and how he, he would get into these really, if anything didn't go his way, his parents were like, oh no. And he would just have these massive temper tantrums. He was about eight or nine years old. Um, and in a way that was beyond what his peers were doing. So like on the soccer field, if, you know, if 
someone kicked, took the ball away from him or he kicked and it didn't go where he wanted. He would just have these major meltdowns. And so first I wanted to kind of help him understand that emotional reaction within him. And we did that by teaching him about the red zone and we can talk about that. But we also um, taught him how not just to understand these, these anger responses, but also how to calm himself down. And this is huge. Most adults don't know this, that we have the power to use our minds to change our brains and our internal states. So um, what I mean by that is once we recognize, gosh, I'm feeling really, like as an example, gosh, I'm feeling really anxious right now. So once we have an awareness that we're feeling something that doesn't feel good, we don't just have to stay stuck there. We don't have to be victim to our internal chaos or our external circumstances. We can say, okay, I'm noticing I'm having a lot of anxiety. I'm feeling it in my body. I'm feeling it all over. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close my eyes for a minute and I'm going to take some really deep breaths and I'm going to relax my body. And so that would be like one tool we can use to say, okay, I'm going to use my mind to shift what's happening in my whole nervous system in this moment. So, we taught him about some calming techniques like slowing his breathing. And this is really cool. This is just really simple science. But if your inhale is shorter than your exhale, so if your exhale, let's say you breathe in for a count of four and then you exhale for a count of six, um, doing that a few times actually lowers our nervous system arousal and calms down our system. So that's just a really simple thing. Um, one thing I've just recently learned um, is there's this scientist at Stanford named Andrew Huberman, and I'm kind of obsessing with his work right now. And he's he's a, a neuro, neuroscientist who's also a visual, um, he's a, also an ophthalmology professor. And he he's done a bunch of science where if you go outside and you soften your focus and look at the whole peripheral view, like take in you know, a much wider visual field that that actually regulates the nervous system. So I've been teaching that to teenagers and stuff recently, and it's been really p powerful. Um, and then the other thing we needed to do with Teddy is to help him when he gets really dysregulated and he gets frustrated really easily when things don't go his way is to help him practice dealing with frustration in a way that he can tolerate. So what that meant was we didn't just teach him about his brain and teach him to breathe, but to say, we're going to practice having a yes brain or staying in the green zone we talked about with him um, when things don't go our way. So we would do some role play and use and give him practice playing games where he wouldn't win and things like that and help him practice. It's like flexing a muscle, right? Um, and we can really celebrate that. Now, one thing that's really important, and this is helpful for adults as well, but particularly children, when we are playful or in play states, so when we're silly or we're laughing or we're, you know, really just in these play humor states, it totally expands our capacity to tolerate things. It keeps us in a yes brain. So, you know, humans do this sort of automatically. Sometimes if something's really stressful or painful, we'll sort of laugh, you know, even though it might seem inappropriate, but it's, we're trying to stay in that state. So if you have a kid who's really anxious about something or who's really frustrated by something, the sillier and more fun you can make it, it will actually let them tolerate that frustration or that anxiety um, more if it's fun and playful. So that's a way we can sort of you know, bring that in. So we, when we were playing, when I was playing games with this kid and having him practice with these role plays, 
we were always also being really silly and, and, and playful. So, um, and then finally, the last thing that, that, you know, was, is really important for building balance is to remind parents that we can be, this is sort of a fancy word, but co-regulators. So what that means is instead of like, okay, here's an example, Aiden. I was on an airplane a couple of weeks ago and, you know, it was a really long flight and there were some parents on there. I'm always really compassionate and helpful to parents on planes who have really fussy children. <laughs> but in this case, I had to really try to stay in my yes brain because this was a five or six year old little girl and she was really wound up. You know, she was just screaming and yelling. And then she was laughing really loudly. And she was just tons of frenetic energy. She was just really in this chaotic state. And the parents kept must have yelled for 10 minutes repeatedly at her, calm down, relax, chill out. Like that that was their whole strategy was to just keep telling her to calm down and relax. <laughs> it was that that annoyed you, not to cry. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the parents didn't know, right? Because I really believe that People do well when they can, and and sometimes parents just don't know. Maybe they were exhausted, you know, whatever. But I wanted to whisper in their ears, like, she doesn't know how. Help her calm down. Help her relax. She can't do it on her own, or she already would have. Because <laughs> she's getting a lot of negative feedback from you, and she wouldn't want that. So this is where, when our kids are in no-brain states, when they're sad, afraid, angry, even at us and being disrespectful to us in that moment, when children are at their worst, when adults are at their worst, that is actually when we most need connection. So when our children are unbalanced in a moment and they're kind of falling apart, that's when we can come in and we're sort of like an external hard drive. We become the external prefrontal cortex, right? So we sort of plug into our kid's system and know that their prefrontal is not working. So we're going to access ours and use ours. And we're going to really, you know, say, I can see you're having a really hard time right now. I'm right here with you. You're safe. I've got you and we'll figure this out together. But it's really this idea of helping them move back into balance through connection, through soothing, through empathy. And this, again, is not a permissive approach. Once the child is back into a yes brain state, that's when we address the behavior because the brain is either in a reactive state where it cannot learn or in a receptive state where it can learn. When we're in a no brain state, not only are we not creative or flexible or regulated, but we also are not able to learn. And so if the whole point, and Dan and I wrote about this you know, in length in our book, No Drama Discipline, if the whole point and purpose of discipline is to teach so that the child becomes self-disciplined, you know, to build skills so they can do it for themselves, even when no one's looking, they are you know, doing well in the world. Discipline's really about teaching, and most of the world thinks about discipline as punishment. But punishment almost never builds skills. And so our kids don't have a better strategy to use the next time. So the original meaning of the word discipline is to teach. So if we can hold that idea in our mind that every discipline moment is actually an opportunity to teach. And so if we want our children, if we want to be effective disciplinarians, we, by that I mean teachers, we have to make sure that the person we're teaching is able to learn in that moment. So if I, if I have a kid that's really mad and whether it's at me or some, something else and they're disrespectful, they say like, I hate you. You're so stupid. Now, my instinct is to say, you can't talk to me like that. That's so disrespectful, which actually you can't talk to me like that. That's a really dumb thing to say because they can, they just did. Right. <laughs> um, 
but you know and to to kind of lay down the law and not allow them to act like that but if i'm a really thoughtful disciplinarian and i can stay balanced myself and stay in the the yes brain state myself then what i can say to the child is oh i can see you're so mad right now i will listen how can i help and i i help them move back into a yes brain state through connection and empathy and soothing then once they're back in that state they're ready to learn and then i can say hey the way you talked to me earlier that did not feel good and it's not really how we like to communicate in our family and so tell me about that you know what was going on for you and how can you do it differently next time it's okay to be mad but it's not okay to be disrespectful and i wouldn't want you to talk like that to anybody and so then we address the behaviors, but it's only when they're in that yes brain state that they can learn. Yeah. And I think this is a really important one because people who are progressive and taking in new information, et cetera, often try to impart those lessons back to their children. And most of the time you say kids misbehave because they can't control their emotions and bodies right now. It's not because they won't. Right. And before we teach them or try to derive a lesson from an experience, we must first calm them and then guide them back to equilibrium. I thought that was a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, it's so important. The first first step is to make sure we're in states of equilibrium, right? Because I can't teach effectively if I'm in a no-brain state, right? We often get so driven by our own fear. Like if I let my kid get away with this, or if I let them talk to me like this, you know, we sort of start jumping these huge leaps of fear in our mind, like then they're never going to be successful and they're not going to have opportunities and they're never going to be employed and they're going to live in a van by the river the rest of their life. You know, like we just jump to these, you know, these are like, oh, if I let the kids sleep in bed with me one night when they had a nightmare, they'll never sleep on their own. I promise you they will sleep on their own at some point, you know. So I think that um, the thing that should really be driving us when our kids their worst behaviors, the stuff that we worry about that drives us crazy, that causes the most conflict in our homes, our kids are telling us, you know, behavior is communication. And they're basically telling us, I don't have the skills to deal with this well. So um, like, I'll give an example from the school where I work. There was a little first grade boy um, who used appropriate, inappropriate language in during library time. So he said the word butt crack, right? He said butt crack in the library. So that's not appropriate language for school. Um, but when we thought about, instead of just saying, okay, now you have to miss recess, you know, or you get, don't get to come to library tomorrow or whatever, just throw a punishment at him. When we do what Dan and I call chase the why, and we become um, curious from our own yes brains to say, what was that about? What is the mind behind that behavior? This kid knows that's not appropriate language. Why would he say something like that? And, you know, it might just be because he's a six-year-old boy who thinks body humor is funny, like most adults still do. Um, What happened, though, is I became curious and I started learning more about this little guy. And he was a little boy who had a lot of trouble entering play with his peers. And so when he used this inappropriate language, his friends all really laughed and he was able to join in play with his peers. And so it was a really, it's, it was a, sometimes the problematic behaviors are the child's best adaptation or the child's best strategy, right? So this was his best strategy that he could come up with. But when I could really look at it, he was basically saying, I need skill building and joining with my peers in appropriate ways. So if I just punish him and say, you can't come to library tomorrow, I'm not helping him have any skills that he can use in the next interaction with his peers. So instead of thinking about discipline as something we do to children, like a punishment, 
we need to think about what can we do with them or for them to start building those skills. Um, and really, you know, it's, it's a lot of work to do it this way, but it's a lot of work not to do it this way. And if we, you know, sometimes when I talk about this, parents are like, oh, but I just, it's so tiring to be so intentional and to stay, it's just so much easier to just yell at them, you know, and in, instead of having this kind of more reflective dialogue and thinking about the behavior. And I, what I often say is that if we don't do it that way, we're going to have a lot more drama and we're going to have a lot more years of discipline because if we're being effective, we're changing behavior because we're giving them skills and better strategies and helping them develop a much wider window of tolerance and having more often of a yes brain. So we end up disciplining less over time, right? If you're effective in disciplining and teaching, that means as development unfolds, you really shouldn't have to be disciplining nearly as much. Yeah, I, I often think of this part like delegation in a, a business or an organization because you need people to go through the experience themselves in order to create the kind of neural pathways to do it again more often. And you say when we're emotionally present and offer our comfort in moments of high tension, we do even more to expand their green zone. Within their memory systems, such experiences teach kids that things can be tough, but they can handle it and bounce back. The next time a difficult situation arises, part of the memory that will be activated will be these experiences facing challenges and moving effectively through them. And here you call it pushing and cushion. I love this. Uh, yeah. And it's a big one in the world today because it, it has got easier, has got a little bit softer. The understanding of when to let the child struggle and when to step in. Yeah, this is a big one. And so really what we're, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about sort of, you know, these repeated experiences, it's not at all that different from when we're talking about building muscle. So you go into the gym, you want to build some, you know, muscle, you've got to do reps with that weight, right? You got to do them over and over. And then the next day or the day after that, you got to go back and do more reps. And that's really what we're helping our kids do is getting reps of sitting in something that's hard or difficult and saying, I'm with you, you can do this and giving them enough support so that they can tolerate it and be successful. The idea of pushing and cushion is we have to really sort of know our kid. Every kid's different. And some kids need to be pushed a little bit more to step outside their comfort zone, to try something new, to take a risk, to, um, you know, like some kids, that they're really scared to go off to summer camp for a week or two, you know, and the parents know that this will be a really good experience for them. So they're kind of pushing even the kids like, I don't want to be away from home. The parents may say, I know it's hard to be away from home, but you can do this. And um, you know, we know you've got this and we know you'll be safe there. And so you kind of give a little bit of a push in to expand them so that they can draw upon all that's been wired and take a step further. But sometimes if we're just doing the push in, we're going to push too hard or too far. So then the child gets overwhelmed and moves more into a no brain state. And that's where we also might need a little a little cushion. And, you know, I think about this, like my firstborn is is an introvert and he was a slow to warm up kid. And so, you know, I learned for him that, you know, if we weren't the first one to arrive to baseball practice, you know, if, if there were a bunch of kids and we were one of the last ones to, to arrive, it was really um, stressful for him to walk up into a bunch of people. But if we were one of the first to arrive and, you know, there weren't as many people, he could kind of warm up. So even just being there was kind of pushing, but the cushion of that was let's give him a little bit more time to kind of get acclimated to people showing up. And, you know, this is when he was really little. And so it's sort of a combination of how can I provide enough challenge to my kid 
to help them grow, but how do I provide them with enough support so that they can do that successfully and not be overwhelmed. And, you know, I think about this, um, I'm the founder and executive director of an interdisciplinary clinical practice, and I built this business. Um, and, you know, I think about this with my team leaders and the people that are the next tier down of leaders. And I think about this with my employees that, you know, sometimes they need pushing to say, look, you know, you can, you can really reach more people if you do this, you know, and then other times they need more nurturing and more cushion. Like that was, you know, that, that felt really um, hard for you. How can I support you to do that? So it's really sort of a balance of, of cushion and cushion. And it comes up all the time. How do I know if I can, should push or how do I know if I should give a little bit more of a softer place to fall? And it's usually a good combination of both. That's always in flux. I'd love to talk about the communication of the message or the lesson you're trying to derive through discipline you talk about minimizing, criticizing, shaming, and distancing because, for example, a child falls, they hurt their knee. You think maybe you're building resilience by going, ah, come on, that didn't hurt that much. But remembering back to what you said about first you need to connect emotionally. This was a huge lesson for me, Tina, I have to say, was uh, sometimes I jump the step. I don't connect first because I'm going in my mind and probably my caveman brain, I'm saying <laughs> he, he has to survive out there in the world. It, there's tigers out there. So I right. want him to be able to deal with it when he needs to on his own. Yeah, it's, it is a huge thing. And I think, you know, I, I'm guilty of, of missing the connect step, like with my husband, you know, I'll just jump straight to the sort of problem solving or, you know, or defending myself or whatever. So it's something I'm not we, the only one. I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, it's, it's something we all, it's something we really all need to work on all the time, but it's so important. And I want to say this, the research is really clear that if we push children to independence before they're developmentally ready, that actually makes them less resilient. It makes them more dependent. So we cannot spoil our children or mess them up in any way, shape, or form if we provide them with as much nurturing and connection and empathy as we want, right? It's really around where kids can kind of go sideways or what we call might call spoiled is where parents don't have boundaries, right? Where we just let them do whatever they want. So in terms of this warmth and this connection, um, it won't make them too soft to handle the lions of the world. It'll actually make their brains more resilient. So this connect piece is so powerful. And let me just talk about this a little bit more. So let's say your child has fallen, like you said, and, and scraped the knee and they're crying. And now sometimes parents will say, oh, you're okay. Now that seems benign enough and it's not that big of a deal. But if we think about it this way, the child's internal landscape and what the child's really feeling physically and emotionally is not okay. I don't feel okay. I'm in pain right now. This is upsetting to me. And when the parent then says, you're okay, what their internal experience is and their parent's response is not a match. So their experience is, they don't get me. They don't understand me. Um, and, uh, and what I, what I see that happens in the store all the time, like I'll see it. I was in target the other day and I saw this, this little kid who had, you know, I don't know what the kid did, but he was like, ow, ow, ow. And the mom was like reading the ingredients on some mouthwash. And, you know, I totally get it. She's trying to just get out of there and he's probably been making noise all along. Right. But he just thought, oh, oh, and done it. And we've done it too. Um, and so, but this kid just got louder and louder and more and more dramatic. And as soon as the mom said, what happened? What's going on? He's like, I, you know, I 
hit my toe or something. And she was like, ouch, oh, that must hurt. Are you okay? He was like, yeah, I'm okay. Like it just stopped, right? And so what happened there was, you know, it took a minute, but once this kid's internal experience and the mom's response were a match, the child could let it go. And so what happens over time, and this leads into a lot of science on attachment, um, is that if you have an internal experience and your parent always or frequently is dismissing it, denying it, telling you it's not that big of a deal, quit crying. Why are you being such a baby about that? You know, if you're going to be upset, just go to your room and be upset. And when you're, when you're all together, come, you know, you can come back out. When we do these kinds of things as a parent, then the child has a lot of actually internal isolation because they're not seen and they're not um, understood by their parent. And so what happens, like, my niece one time said, um, Auntie Tina, are you mad? And I wasn't even aware. I wasn't mad at her. I was mad at somebody I was on the phone with or something. And I, um, you know, I thought like my first instinct was to be like, no, no, I'm not mad to kind of minimize it myself. But if I say, no, I'm not mad. And this four-year-old has looked at my face and heard my tone of voice and has picked up, Tina's a little mad right now. And I say to her, no, I'm not mad. She has two choices. Option one is, hmm. I must not be very good at reading those cues. I can't trust myself. Or option two, Auntie Tina's a liar and she doesn't tell me the truth. Wow. And so those are the two options. When we minimize or dismiss or deny or counter argue, you know, with our child's experience um, and children for, with their parents, um, we need to, we have to be able to trust our caregivers or we, you know, biologically, we think I won't be able to survive if I can't trust them. So what happens typically is that children will say, hmm, I must not be able to trust myself. So they start becoming disconnected from their own internal world and their own emotions. So this is really an important piece. You talk here about the four S's. This is a, a really great takeaway maybe we can get from it. The safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Yeah. And, you know, this, this applies to every relationship because what this is about is about mammal, um, mammal circuitry. Okay. So this is how we are all hardwired as mammals. And this is so fascinating. And this is, you know, Dan and I have a book coming out January of 2020 called the power of showing up that goes deep into this concept, but the single best predictor for how well children turn out on everything that they are measured on. And this is based on decades and decades and decades of, of science is that they have had secure attachment with at least one person. And when we talk about secure attachment, Dan and I really like to, to talk about that as the four S's, where we feel safe, seen, soothed. And then over time, when we have those experiences of being safe, seen, and soothed, predictably, not perfectly, but most of the time, then we develop this fourth S of security and predictability. And what happens then is our brain becomes wired to know that if I have a need, someone will see it and show up for me. And you can see how that translates into the kinds of friendships we pick and the kinds of mates that we pick. Um, and what's so powerful about this is that this is a mammal drive and instinct. So if you're a chimpanzee in the jungle and you get hurt or you hear a scary jaguar snarl, the first thing you're going to do as a mammal is run straight to your attachment figure, someone who will help you survive. Okay, so what this means is that this attachment drive is really fundamentally based on 
that when we are in states of distress, that's when we most need connection and protection. And so what happens, though, for a lot of kids is that when they are in need and in distress, sometimes it looks like bad behavior and no one, no one helps them calm down or be understood. They instead get punished. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of natural consequences. Like, you know, if when my kid didn't do his project very well and he came home with a D, I was like, oh, it's disappointing to not get the grade that you want. Like, I can still be empathetic without, you know, rescuing him or, you know, whatever. So it's not about protecting our kids from not feeling bad things. It's about walking with them through it so that they feel held. And so, you know, this is so key. Like if this is, and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, about, about 50% of U.S. parents are anti-spanking and about 50% are pro-spanking. But in the U.S., about 94% of children are spanked at least once by the time they're one. So it's an almost universal childhood experience, whether parents believe in it or not. Um, and I think this is a really, you know, there's lots of arguments against corporal punishment or, or spanking. But I think this attachment one for me is the most compelling because one of the things that we know about attachment is that there are these different patterns of attachment. So secure attachment is the best predictor for how well kids turn out. And what we know about that is it actually develops the prefrontal cortex. So it develops a yes brain, this relationship. But there are what are called insecure styles of attachment where you have a really disconnected emotional desert type parent. Um, where your needs are not seen and soothed and connected to, or you have a really chaotic parent that's super unpredictable. And then the, the most difficult pattern of attachment is called disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment is really the one that's most difficult to talk about because it's the idea that let's say you are in physical pain or you are, you know, terrified and you run, you have this biological drive that says, go to your attachment figure, go to your parent to keep you safe. But what happens when your parent is the source of your pain or the source of your terror, then it creates a completely different competing biological drive that says, get the hell away from what's dangerous, right? So you've got this, this competing stuff. But the way we think about these four S's is so powerful, and I think it is so hopeful is that, you know, the best predictor for whether or not we as parents can provide secure attachment to our children, provide predictable but not perfect experiences to help our children feel safe, seen, and soothed and secure, is not whether or not we had parents who did that for us. Thank goodness, because that's about 40% of the population. But rather that we have come to make sense of those experiences. So what that means is the best predictor for parents who can provide secure attachment have what we call a coherent narrative. They have reflected back on those ex relational experiences and have said, that was really hard for me. People didn't show up for me. I was really on my own. Or I had parents that were kind of scary and unpredictable. And that was hard for me. And here's how I've made sense of it. And here's how I want to do things differently. When we can get to that place of, reflection and creating a coherent narrative, the research shows that we can get what's called earned security ourselves. And then we can parent our children in those ways too, that develop their brains in the most optimal way. And this is so great because what this means is that in a moment as a parent, when I don't know what to do, um, I don't know how I should respond to a particular behavior or a particular issue. And as when they become teenagers, like my boys are now, 
you know, the stakes are higher, you know, that they do things that can lead to more dangerous kinds of outcomes. In the moment, you know, I'm like, what do I what do I do about this? How do I handle this? How do I respond? I can always go back to the four S's. They are my guiding light as a parent because they keep me in a yes brain state. They help build a yes brain in my child. And I can say, how can I respond in a way that helps my child first feel safe, seen, and soothed and secure? And once they do that, then we can problem solve together. And so this is just a huge, huge way that we do this. And, you know, when you talk about skipping the step and kind of going straight to the problem solving, addressing the behaviors kinds of things, that reconnect step is good. But when we connect first and bring this idea of these four S's, it changes everything. I had a client that I was working with, a dad who had a really challenging five-year-old. The kid was a a very, um, he had some sensory challenges. And so he was a really sensitive kid who would overreact really easily. And um, so they would end up in these battles. The kid would yell and scream and even sometimes kick his dad. And then the dad would, you know, those states are contagious. So dad goes into that state too, this no brain state with him and starts yelling. And, um, and so they ended up just both of them being in these no brain states day after day after day. And so I coached this dad. And I told him, I said, the next time your son is in that really reactive state, I want you to stop yelling because you're actually activating his uh, fight, flight, freeze circuitry when you're, when you're communicating threat to him through aggressive facial expressions and aggressive tones of voice. And what I want you to do instead is to sit in a really relaxed posture below your child's eye level. And he, he didn't, he wasn't on board with this at first. He was like, you want me to sit in a submissive posture to my, like he didn't. And I said, no, 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 it's not that. Think about it as a, um, as an intentional posture to downregulate his nervous system. I just sort of used a bunch of science words to make him feel better about it. <laughs> um, but um, I said, and when you're, when you're sitting in that state, your child's raging, he's being disrespectful, he's yelling, he's throwing things, whatever it is. I want you to only say two things. I want you to say to him something empathetic. Buddy, I can see that you're so mad right now. And number two, I want you to say, I'm right here with you. And I didn't think I would ever see those parents again. The dad didn't receive this very well. But a couple of weeks later, they came back and the dad said, I have to admit, when you when we left your office, I just thought it was such a waste of time and money. And I just thought it was BS. And he said, but in a moment of desperation, my child was raging and I didn't have the energy to battle with him. So I just sort of sat on the floor and he said, I didn't say it exactly like you. I was like, I can tell you're mad, but I'll sit here, you know, but it was progress, right? I was still happy. <laughs> um And he said, my child calmed down faster than I've ever seen him. And I stayed calm, right? And so we have to remember these brains of ours are neural networks. And so when we have, when we start yelling at someone, we activate our own fight circuitry. But even if we're wanting to yell or we're really frustrated and we sit in a relaxed posture and we say something connecting, I can tell you're mad, but I'll be here with you. What we're doing is we're activating a totally different neural circuitry in our own brains, right? We're activating our own yes brains. So what happens there is the child feels safe and seen and then soothed. When you say, I can see you're upset, that's seen. And then you say, I'm right here with you, or you're safe, I'm with you. You're saying these kinds of things to our children. It very quickly helps them move back into a state of regulation. And and it's really back to those four S's, helping them feel safe, seen, and soothed. Yeah, and there's so much more in this book that we're not going to get through, but I found it really encouraging. And the key takeaway from the book was that if we do nothing else but provide the experience of feeling safe, soothed, 
seen and secure most of the time, we're doing the most powerful thing that we can do to build an integrated, resilient brain. And I think that is really important message to get across as well, because there's so much information out there. People feel stressed themselves, let alone having to think about the brain architecture of their children. That's right. Yeah. And that's why you don't you don't have to even think about that. You just show up for them when they need you most, particularly, which often looks like the worst behaviors, you know. And I think that's such a key point to walk away with, too, is that when they're at their worst, that's when they need us the most. And I think that's true when we have coworkers or or employees that, you know, if they're being really negative and really difficult to be with, that's probably when they most need support and connection. And so this is just such an important compassionate way to be in the world that when we see people being vile and um, and doing and saying things that feel like evil, even then we can say, you know, something difficult may have happened to them. And not that we have to heal the world with taking care of everybody, but I think the people in our immediate circles that are struggling, they probably need connection too. And we can approach with compassion. I love that as well, the idea that behavior is communication. Tina, where can people find out more about your work, your new book you mentioned, etc.? Yeah, so my website is tinabryson.com, and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And they can find all the information about the books. We've got the new book that I mentioned coming out January 7th, 2020, called The Power of Showing Up, and that's available for pre-order. And we're so happy to say that all of our books, but particularly The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and now The Yes Brain, are translated in many, many languages. Whole Brain Child is up to probably 45 or 50 languages by now, all over the world. What a legacy. Author of The Yes Brain Child, Help Your Child Be More Resilient, Independent, and Creative, Dr. Tina Payne-Bryson, thank you for joining us. Thank you.